Okay. What are you? Quite a sort what? of boisterous. Boisterous, yep, okay. Yeah, very sort of forthright sounding. Big, okay. big, big amphibian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think you'd have made it that easy, would you? No. Okay. That would be too easy. If I had done Asian common toads, that would have been too easy. But, but, you're along the right lines. Large, yes. Yeah, it also, like big. Widespread, because they have been introduced into places. Oh. Hmm. Sure. Don't think cane toad either, because it ain't cane toad. Okay, cane toad would have been too easy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Big toad introduced places. I didn't uh, say toad. Toad, frog. Oh, it's the American bullfrog. Very close. Uh, it's not the American bullfrog. It's the Indus Valley bullfrog. Hoplobactracus oh. tigerinus. Because, so... Did you practice that? What? That pronunciation. Hoplobactracus? Yeah. No, because it's one that I worked with in my masters. We had some DNA from them, I believe. Amazing. And they're introduced into Madagascar, which will become pertinent later because we'll be talking about introduced stuff to Madagascar. But that's why I picked them, because I can't pick Asian common toad. That's too easy. So I'll pick something that's thematically similar. And they are monsters, so like 17 centimetres big. Oh, neck. <laughs> they are. They do get monstrous. And people will know them because these are the guys that turn bright yellow during breeding with those massive oh. blue... What do you call those things when they're called? I know it's called like a gula pouch or something in... I don't know what they're called in frogs. Maybe it's that. Weave away. It's the gula region, I don't know. Those are bright blue, so you've got these bright yellow, like lemon yellow, monstrous frogs calling with this blue sort of vocal vocal sack. So incredibly striking. And, uh, well, that's what they sound like. <laughs> and what was the common name again? Well, Amphibia Web has them down as the Indus Valley Bullfrog. Hmm. But I think they're also known as maybe just the Indian bullfrog. Okay. Because it's not like we have official international common names like some other groups. No, common names. Are yes, okay, so Wikipedia has them as the Indian bullfrog. Amphibia Web has them as the Indus Valley bullfrog. Yeah. But very topical, Ben, because we're going to be talking about toads. Although that's a frog, but it's, you know, the whole Madagascar theme... <laughs> so the second paper is by Lakata, Ficatola, Falashi, Muller, Andrioni, Harrison, Freeman, Montero, Rosa and Crotini, published in 2023, Spatial Ecology of the Invasive Asian Common Toad in Madagascar and its Implications for Invasion Dynamics, published in Scientific Reports. Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked about this toad invasion before. Again, there are episodes covering it in more detail, but... Long story short is we have the Asian common toad, which probably came from somewhere like southern Vietnam, Cambodia sort of location, if the genetic stuff is bang on. And they've been introduced to the east coast of Madagascar around 2014, maybe is the earliest idea. I think more like the sort of suggestions that it was maybe a bit later 
anywhere up to 2019, I think. But the point is, combination toads are there, and it's pretty much a situation that people have looked at as cane toad, cane toad v2, or really cane toad v like three or four or five. Cane toads and Asian common toads are definitely on the list of like the top potential invasive species. And one of the reasons they're kind of spooky for islands is things get poisoned by them because they are mm. exceedingly toxic if you chew on them. Yes. And that was actually something which you studied, wasn't it? Because you right. had, there was your paper from your master's degree that came out a few years ago, which basically said, look, watch out, because most of the animals in Madagascar which are likely to eat a toad, or even ones which like might occasionally eat a toad, even ones which are like not even that likely to eat a toad, but it's possible, they're all pretty <laughs> much... They're all pretty much... They're in trouble. (laughs) Don't eat toads. Yeah, they're all vulnerable to this bufotoxin, which is the toxin secreted by the the neck glands, these parietal glands on the back of the toad's head, which they squeeze a milky, viscous substance out of, and it contains toxins, bufotoxins, which are bad. Being pretty much backed up now because there are observations of snakes being poisoned in Madagascar. So... Yep. Even more Theory than that, there's and practice of, all tallying up. Yeah. yeah, no, it was actually really sad. There's a paper about the decline of the Malagasy cat-eyed snake locally, which, yeah, you know, I remember when we were talking about this previously, when you, you when your paper came out and it was like, oh yeah, this is going to be a thing. And now I hadn't checked on it for a while. And now we're doing a paper about how, well, this paper's about how the toad's spreading, but there are papers about... Well, there's at least the one impact. paper about the decline of this, of a local snake, which they're not extinct locally. And like seeing in Australia that predators are in some ways modifying their behavior to um, avoid the toads. So yep. they may not end up extinct, but they're going to suffer some serious declines in the meantime until they work it's another <laughs> It's another unneeded pressure in a part of the world that is a biodiversity hotspot and sort of needs all the help it can get. Yeah. Yes. So the toxic toads are invading and they've already spread over a large area, more than 500 kilometers squared. So big. And it's already been decided. Basically, those in the know have kind of said, look, given the management methods that are available to us right now in Madagascar, it's impossible to eradicate this toad. So it's kind of like a not like a watch and see situation. I guess they're trying to control them locally, but really... I think you should sort of borrow a term from coastal management and call it like a managed retreat. A managed right? retreat. Mm. Yeah, you're sort of slowing them down as you can with the resources available, but at the same time recognising that the sort of progression of this toad front isn't stopping. and uh, You're just trying to sort of... slow it and do what you can as you go Mm. yeah well in australia they did all sorts of stuff they were even like training animals that these toads were toxic so right we're trying to and at least there is a lot of stuff out of australia that could help regarding sort of more long-term ways to mitigate their impacts and things because there's outrageous quantity and quality of stuff coming out of australia regarding cane toad Mm. impacts and mitigative strategies. Yeah. So the population of toads in Madagascar is estimated to spread. So the range of the toads is increasing by approximately two kilometers a year. They're expanding in every direction and across all habitats. Thing is, that does include urban areas in uh, Tomasina, which is the capital of Madagascar. No. Nope. As well. No? 
No, it's not the capital of Madagascar, no. Oh, isn't it? What's the capital? And Antananarivo, if I'm oh, yeah. pronouncing that correctly. Well, Thomasina is like the big port city in the south, right? Port city on the east. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about Madagascar. Yeah, okay, cool. But the point I was making is that these toads are pretty tolerant of urban environments. Like they're actually, you know, they're found in pretty disturbed areas. They're even in the city of uh, Thomasina. And I mean, I've seen them. We've seen them in Thailand and like... You know, they'll just like live under your house. They're pretty chill. Kind of they're like super UK chill. Toads. They're classic generalist. It's that proper invader trait, right? Where the other animals have been pushed out because they can't sort of handle human disturbance. Your rats and your toads and your hardy generalists come cruising in. It's brilliant. Yeah. If they you just it. need a hole in the ground to live in and you can eat any old stuff, you're all right. <laughs> but yeah, they're habitat generalists. So... Yeah, this this study, I mean, they were doing a radio telemetry study, weren't they? And um, obviously they're putting mm-hmm. very small transmitters on relatively small toads. So not huge battery life, not huge periods of tracking. Little belts. Um, little, yeah, they, little like silicone belts is what they're, what they're using, belt. I think. Yeah. And um, yeah, but they track like over 90 toads. So a lot of them. And they managed to make some inferences about their behaviour, one of which was that the fact that they are more active when it's wetter or more humid, which won't come as a surprise to many people who like toads because they love it nice and damp. But what that means is that the wet season is expected to be the time where they're likely to disperse and probably spread because they're more active as it's wetter. And um, yeah, less so in the drier periods. They're not moving long distances a day. They're probably hopping about locally and admittedly they were only tracking toads like every couple of days, but they were averaging about six meters of movement a day. But, you know, they were probably hopping around a little bit, but they're not like traveling long distances. They're pretty sort of uh, sedentary. Their sort of biggest single night movements were shy of 70 meters. So they do have the capacity for like, I was going to say a bigger jump, but it's actually not that big a jump, but a bigger jump. It's more a... How many sort of big jumps do you need to get, you know, like over a certain biogeographical barrier, like over a highway or something, or over a, you know, a patch of very dry, arid ground or, or something that isn't good for just regular toad life? Mm. And 70 meters, yeah, might be enough to do these sort of big one-off hops. Yeah. But they were saying, weren't they, that the kind of progress of these toads is actually a lot slower than the progress of cane toads. And right. Especially on the like the invasion boundary, cane toads, you know, there's like this sort of like spreading morph, which are like end up at the front of the invasion, which have like yeah. longer legs and can sort of trundle quicker than your average toad. So they're sort better of better at climbing and just yeah. sort of general movers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're better at traveling. So they find themselves at the front. They're like, come on. They're sort of saddling the whole population on their backs and sallying <laughs> forth into new environments. But yes. these toads don't really have that to the same extent. Not they yet. Can- Certainly it's not viewable yet. I think that's the other thing is it's good getting this data in now. Yeah. And getting good data now because you'll be able to see how this sort of dynamic might develop in the years to come. Because we're still pretty early days. You know, we're only talking, what are we talking, like nine to five years into the toads really getting up and going. So... I feel like that's what being a herpetologist is going to become, like excitement over the fast scale evolution of invading animals. I mean, yeah, the call we had at the beginning of the episode, this is not the first introduced invasive amphibian in Madagascar. So we'll see what impact this one has. Thankfully, the previous one, the the Indian bullfrog, wasn't toxic. Mm. So Yeah, but Madagascar doesn't have any native 
Buffonids, toads in the family Buffonidae. Right. Buffonidae. Yeah, didn't realise that. Yeah. So these things are pretty novel to the environment. Yeah, well, novel like they were in Australia, exactly. Yeah, crazy. And um, yeah, you know, they make the point, you said at the beginning that it was humans that brought them here, probably in sort of ship, like cargo, like just sort of materials. These toads, actually, their like favoured hiding places were like piles of stacked lumber, vegetation debris, garbage, hollow concrete blocks, all of these sort of trappings of human environments they love to hide in. And so, you know, if you're conducting, I don't know, maybe you're building a school in the north of Madagascar, you're travelling there with some cement blocks. They say here, it's really important that these are checked thoroughly in case of accidental toad transport. I mean, is that going to be happening to every single cement block that's traveling from Thomasina elsewhere. Unfortunately, probably not. So it does kind of seem like only a matter of time until there's other sort of pockets. And I did like that in their little figure of the toad invasion, they used like a bullseye for the epicenter of the toad invasion, which was quite cool, quite sad, but also like, I liked that as like the epicenter symbol. Well, um, I think that's you bringing up the um, human facilitated movement, shall we call it, is even more of a big deal here because it's shown that their dispersal isn't that dramatic so their spread is going to be so dependent on these big leaps from people or at least that seems to be the suggestion is yeah by the time they're going to sort of slowly progress and i think there are probably still suggestions that they might not do as well in the forested areas oh really hmm not so good in the forest that's quite surprising actually well i think the suggestion is that in the forest there is less ecological space left for an invader to come in you've got everything nicely specialized and it's filled up all the sort of niches there's less space for a generalist we'll see because it's not like this is not a species that does just fine in forest and in fact if you remember way back we covered a paper comparing forest toads to agricultural toads I think it was in Hong Kong and uh, in Thailand. And it was basically showing that the forest toads were sort of heavier and healthier than the agricultural toads. So, I don't know, we'll see. There is a little hint in this paper that there might be something like that going on already because we have leaner toads sort of further away from where they were initially introduced. So, I think it's a group that are further away. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so there might already be some like sublethal fitness losses as they're sort of colonizing new areas. Wow, watch this space. They're coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have lots of cause to cover this. <laughs> I mean, it will be back on the podcast, guaranteed. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's yeah. changing pretty quickly. And um, yeah. yeah, we'll see what these, these chubby little toxic toads can do and well i think that's about it for toxic toads so yeah the asian spined toads coming across madagascar and now they're spreading uh, not that quickly but they are <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> yeah pretty they're pretty coming. much they're slowly they're slow but steady progress it seems <laughs> yeah yeah so uh have you got any other business ben i don't not for this episode no okay i've got one thing so a paper came out quite recently in the last couple of weeks in current biology and it is entitled Oxpeckers Help Rhinos Evade Humans. Did you catch up with this? I have no, I'm completely Completely unrelated to herpetology, but Okay. Oxpeckers. Well unless right? you count birds as reptiles. Mm, nah. Nah. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> we want to get that deep in the weeds, but 
Yeah, so <laughs> oxpeckers are like these little birds. They sit on the backs of, well, oxen, obviously, but also rhinos and other like large mammals, zebras. Classic. Yeah, and uh, they've got this like red beak, red Picking eye. Picking into them. Yeah, Drinking with their yellow. Blood. Yeah, yeah. And they sit on the backs. And for a long time, it was thought to be a mutualism. So um, the oxpeckers are eating like ticks and other bugs and nasties off the oxen. And the oxen are like, yeah, cool, I'll keep you around. I guess, you know, you're not really very likely to be eaten by anything if you're sitting on the back of like a water buffalo or something like that, because they're monstrous and they're not really getting attacked very often. And if they do, you can just fly away. But um, yeah, the point is, it was not really sure because the ticks, but they also sometimes, like you said, Ben, they'll like peck a hole in the animal and sort of like start slurping up the blood. But um, yeah, the authors of this paper decided to do a field experiment and see whether or not oxpeckers helped rhinos to detect humans. And um, obviously rhinos, amazing, majestic creatures, but they're like kind of dumb. They're like sort of... <laughs> well, they don't have the best eyesight, right? They can't that's, really that's see that well. one of their limitations. I've also always kind of felt like their decision making is kind of like pretty binary. It's like, I'll either do nothing or I'll charge. <laughs> I'm not sure how fair that is. I don't know. But okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're widely regarded to be the dum-dums of the savannah. But um, <laughs> anyway, so they decided to test and see whether or not rhinos, which had oxpeckers sitting on them, were um, better at detecting humans. And what they found was that actually oxpeckers enabled between 40 and 50% of rhinos to evade humans without the humans actually ever seeing the rhino. So when the oxpeckers see a human, they call out in warning and it alerts the rhino that there's something nearby. And Whenever this happened, rhinos generally started looking downwind because humans, our favourite hunting direction is to be downwind of the animal, right? So that we can't be smelt. And obviously rhinos mm -hmm. yep. have good smell, yep. so that's a good thing to do. And so when they heard the calls of these oxpeckers, they instinctively began to look downwind to sort of like face a threat which is coming from downwind, which would be a human. And um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. So... They were also able in, in many cases to just leave the area and humans never actually spotted them. And they call this anti-predator eavesdropping. And um, yeah, it's a pretty cool case of like the bird, you know, helping the rhino to clock a predator, a human. That's outrageously cool. In addition awesome. to sort of eating the parasites. Yeah. So it's kind of this extra dynamic to the uh, ox pecker and the large mammal relationship where, you know, maybe they are pecking holes in their bodies and drinking their blood, but at least they're kind of warning them about potential predators, which could be really important. I mean, half the time it means that the predator doesn't see you. It's pretty amazing. How did they know they didn't see them? Because they asked the people if they'd seen the rhino and they were like, nah. How did they know there was a rhino there? Because <laughs> <How? laughs> the researchers knew. They kept it secret. Oh, right. So they had like researchers observing. The rhinos were seen by somebody. You need a bunch of clueless people to walk around expecting to maybe see a rhino, but not being. Oh, okay. Okay. That's okay. Happened. I think they sent them in. So the people looking for the rhinos experimentally were not the same people who knew where the rhino was to begin with to be <laughs> no, examining just... whether the rhino was turning away or not. <laughs> no, no. They call them human approach trials. And, um, right. Yeah. Oh, wait, hang on. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to derail things. You've outed me because I actually just scanned the paper, looked at the figures, and read the abstract. But yeah, classic no, me. Just... Can I get some methods, please? Yeah. Sorry. Um, some nice figures though, and there's even a video. Nice little summary. 
which uh well i could play but it will make a noise <laughs> i don't know what it's gonna be so i don't want to gamble yeah pretty cool pretty cool they've been exceedingly cool have you got any business post that nope nope i've got no rhino related business or anything no i think that's it i haven't got anything else so yeah just to remind people if you want to support the podcast, you can patreon.com slash herp highlights. And if you donate as little as $1 a month, we'll send you a nice herp highlights sticker in the post and a little card to say thanks. And um, at the higher levels of patronage, you can like choose topics for episodes and all that kind of fun stuff. So if you want to do that, patreon.com slash herp highlights. And again, released a new stock of t-shirts in the last episode. So if you want to check those out, redbubble.com slash herp highlights, get yourself a blue tongue skink or a chameleon in the new colors, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. We're on herphighlights at gmail.com. Similarly, we're on social media. So find us at herphighlights. You can find me and Ben as well. We're on there. And uh, yeah, I think we'll be back next week for some more herpetological goodness. Yes, we should be back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yes. So yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.